Hi, true crime fans. I'm Erin. And I'm Shay. We host All Crime, No Cattle, a conversational podcast which focuses on true crime stories from the Lone Star State. We strive to bring you a balanced and well-researched story about Texas cases big and small. We do the research so you don't have to. We also end every episode with a good news story, just to remind everyone that real life isn't quite as depressing as true crime can make it out to be. New episodes drop every Thursday, and you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All crime, no cattle, because crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Welcome back to Case Closed. I'm Charlie Spicer, your guide through the Rusty Snyderman case. Let's recap. Andrea is on the stand. The prosecution drills her with questions about her life, her relationship with Rusty, and her relationship with Hemi. Though the first day is nearly over, nothing had been done by the prosecution or the defense to build a case showing that Hemi was mentally ill. All eyes are on her. Everyone in the courtroom has to contend with her tone on the stand. She's defensive and condescending. So let's pick up. Don Geary shifts from Andrea and Hemi's alleged relationship to Andrea's knowledge of the crime. Do you remember telling Tammy Parker in late December that you knew who it was that killed Rusty? Asked Geary. Yes, said Andrea. She appeared to become choked up. She had to regain her composure. I told her that I thought it might be Hemi Newman, Andrea said. Then did you immediately call police and tell them it was the defendant? I started a draft email right after I got this mysterious email from Hemi Newman. He was in Florida at the time, the same time I was there. For all I knew, he was monitoring my email, knew exactly where I was, and so when I started the email to Chief Grogan on December 28th, I had a discussion with my parents. What do I do? What do we do? Do I send this? What if he's watching my email? What if he's watching me? But she never sent the email. She didn't call police. She said she had given the detective Hemi's name way back on November 19th, 2010. Her friend told her the idea that Hemi would have committed the murder was ludicrous. She also didn't tell them that she had corresponded by email with Hemi in late December, about a week before his arrest, when she got the Bruno Mars song from him. This was the email asking if she planned to attend the office holiday party. And even when she was informed there was an arrest in the case, she didn't bring up Hemi's name. Geary played the audio recording of police at her house, in which she didn't at first ask who had been arrested. That audio was recorded by Chief Grogan of the Dunwoody Police at Andrea's house. In the recording, Andrea is upset. She had just been down to the police station to inquire about the case. She hadn't heard from police in more than a month. She's agitated. Grogan tells her that they made an arrest. Andrea asks twice if he is sure. She never asks who has been arrested. Geary replays this moment in court. Then he asks her to explain her reaction. Andrea shot back. I'm asking, are you sure that they have the right person? That's what I'm asking. That's it. Are you sure you've got someone? Are you sure that you know that you have the right person? Geary suggested she was sure when she talked to Tammy Parker the week before. I told Tammy, that's fine, that's what I said. 
I had a feeling that it was him. Andrea became agitated on the stand. She jabbed her finger at Geary. But there's no chance that I thought I was right. It was unfathomable and unbelievable that it could be him. Someone that proposed to care about me, care about Rusty, care about my family. She dropped her voice to a whisper. And he murdered my husband. The pressure on Andrea continued with the prosecution's questions on redirect examination. Andrea's answers were laced with apparent anger and disgust. Why were you protecting the defendant, Don Geary asked her. I was not. Why didn't you mention his name? Have you seen what has happened to my life? She lashed out. Have you seen what's happened to Rusty's? The prosecutor responded. Have you noticed what's happened to my life since Hemi was murdered? She corrected herself. Since Hemi murdered my husband? The prosecution left it there, with Andrea getting her murdered husband confused with the killer. For more than a day, the prosecution and defense had gone after her as if she were on trial instead of Hemi, each trying to score points for their own purposes. Many would ask why she testified at all, though in reality she was in a difficult position. A refusal to testify could have brought the spectacle of her taking the fifth in open court, something she clearly felt was unnecessary. Andrea took the position she didn't need to worry about self-incrimination since she had done nothing wrong. In the words of her attorney, Andrea withstood a withering attack on the witness stand. But there would be other struggles for Andrea, both in the courtroom and in the testimony of others. The final blow came when the judge told Andrea that she remained under subpoena and would not be allowed to watch other witnesses. Andrea went into the hall. During a break in later testimony, it was the prosecution that asked the judge to let Andrea return to the courtroom. They argued she had a statutory right to be there any time Hemi was. Robert Rubin objected on the grounds she could talk to other witnesses, some of whom were close to her, and potentially contaminate their testimony. But the judge allowed Andrea to return, and the trial continued, with Andrea watching from the audience section as the prosecution tried to make the case that Andrea had a liaison with Hemi in Longmont, Colorado, then lied about it to police. More witnesses talked about the second Greenville trip that Andrea and Hemi took when a hotel representative testified they had an adjoining room, followed by Pulse nightclub bartender Christine Oliveira, who painted the most vivid picture yet of what both the prosecution and the defense were contending was an affair. Oliveira recalled how Andrea and Hemi had become so steamy on the dance floor groping each other that she looked away. Further advancing the theory of an affair, Hemi's realtor friend, Melanie White, recounted her conversations with Hemi about his marital woes and his affections toward Andrea, leading up to their trip to London. What was his personality like, his demeanor like, asked District Attorney Robert James. Same old Hemi. Had he spoken with you about any delusions that he had been having? No. Did he seem depressed? No. Same old Hemi? Yes except that this Hemi had become infatuated with Andrea. They had adjoining rooms, he told Melanie, and one night he went into hers. He said they laid on the bed and cuddled and did just about everything but have intercourse. Did he use those words? No, those weren't his words. What words did he use? 
that they kissed and they fondled each other and then she got up and went into the bathroom. Did he tell you what she actually did in the bathroom? Yes, he told me that she went into the bathroom to finish herself off. Finish herself off? Yes. Did you ask him what he meant by that? Melanie said. I didn't have to. Well, why didn't you have to? Because I assumed that that meant she was going into the bathroom to masturbate. In the courtroom, Andrea looked down. According to Melanie, Hemi confided that during the second trip to Greenville, the affection on the Pulse dance floor was part of a romantic night with a walk by a lake and a fine dinner. Did he tell you what happened once they ended up in the same hotel room? asked James. What he told me was that she gave in, said White. Did he tell you what he meant by she gave in? No. What did you believe he meant? I believe he meant that they had intercourse. Through it all, Andrea shook her head and whispered to her mother, becoming, it appeared, increasingly agitated. It came to a head when one of her best friends, Shayna Citron, was called. Recounting conversations in the weeks leading up to the murder, Andrea had been enduring marriage trouble, according to Citron, with the pair arguing over household duties and Andrea's travel. There was a time I was concerned for her marriage, said Citron. After the break, Andrea's close friend gives her account of what happened the day Rusty Snyderman was murdered. Case Closed is supported by Best Fiends, the five-star rated mobile puzzle game. Discover the world of Best Fiends and its cute, courageous inhabitants in this fiendishly fun, free-to-download puzzle adventure. Best Fiends is a totally unique puzzle experience. Solve thousands of fun puzzles and collect cute characters along the epic journey. Best Fiends is easy to learn, but difficult to master. So you actually have to concentrate and use your brain. And you can play anywhere, alone or with friends. You can even play offline when you're not connected, like on a plane or on the subway. It's casual and colorful with thousands of hours of fun ahead of you. You don't want to miss this five-star rated mobile adventure. Start solving thousands of fun puzzles today. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Best Fiends, like friends without the R. F-I-E-N-D-S. Best Fiends. Play today. This episode was supported by the new true crime book, Death on the River, by best-selling author Diane Fanning. On a windy afternoon in April 2015, an engaged couple, Angelica and Vincent, set out on a kayaking trip on the Hudson River. They set out at 4.15 p.m. By 7.15, Vincent was dead. His kayak had sunk and he drowned in the 48-degree water. At first, police believed bad weather was to blame for the accident. But Angelica's erratic behavior raised suspicions. So was it really an accident after all? Find out what happened to Vincent Villafor now. You can get a copy of Death on the River by Diane Fanning wherever books are sold. It's available in paperback, ebook, and digital audio. Again, that's Death on the River by Diane Fanning. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. And we're back to Shana Citron's testimony, 
She's recalling the day of Rusty's murder, when Andrea called her while she was in Arizona. She immediately, at the same time, was screaming to me that Rusty had been shot, and she didn't know if he was dead or alive, and she was on the way to the hospital, testified Citron. Are you sure she said she was still on her way to the hospital? asked Geary. Yes, Citron replied. And she told you Rusty had been shot at that time, he continued. Citron nodded, yes. Under cross-examination by Doug Peters, Citron said that while Andrea appreciated the professional compliments from Hemi, she claimed their relationship never went farther. Did Andrea admit or deny an affair with her boss at that time after the murder? asked Peters. Denied it, said Citron. Based on all of the time that you've known Andrea, based on your observations of her, her mannerisms, when she told you no, did you believe it? No, said Citron, but my heart really wanted to believe her. Weeks later, when Andrea was in Florida, the women discussed the police sketch of the killer. And she expressed to you that in looking at the sketches, she kept seeing Hemi's face in those sketches, correct? Not in the face, it was the eyes. When she finished her testimony, Shana Citron walked off the stand and into the audience section of the courtroom. Andrea embraced her and kissed her. It was a long hug, and the women walked out of the courtroom arm in arm. It happened in front of the jury, the kind of demonstration that Hemi's lawyers had feared when they asked the judge to bar Andrea from the courtroom, and it created a kerfuffle. The next day, Adams took the unusual step of putting testimony on hold so he could huddle with lawyers for both sides and with Andrea's attorney. As a reminder, Adams is the courtroom judge. Yesterday, the judge then announced in open court, after one of the witnesses left the witness stand, the court observed interaction by Ms. Snyderman and that witness. It appeared to be a hugging or some type of embrace. The court has to respond to that and give general instruction that no one is to interact with witnesses when they leave the witness stand in the presence of the jury or even outside of the presence of the jury in that manner. Prosecutor Don Geary said Andrea's behavior had actually been much worse. During the testimony of other witnesses, Andrea kept up a running commentary in her seat. She said, that's not true, and that's a lie, and you weren't there, possibly loud enough for the jury to hear, according to Geary. He said that several other witnesses, including her co-workers at GE, asked the DA to keep her away from them. Geary said the prosecution was moving to have her removed from the courthouse. Hemi's attorney, Robert Rubin, reminded everybody that the defense had already asked for her to be booted from the courtroom and said the prosecutor now has certainly provided the court with sufficient reason. We would join in the court's motion. The judge agreed. I am going to direct that Ms. Snyderman be removed from this courtroom, not have any direct or indirect contact with any witnesses or potential witness, he said. The rest of the trial would proceed without Rusty's wife in the courtroom. The prosecution shifted the trial toward Hemi's activities surrounding the murder. Greg Gibbons, service director at Ed Voyle's Honda, talked about Hemi bringing in his Honda Odyssey for recall service, but not staying around for the quick repair. Christina Testa, the Enterprise Rent-A-Car manager, spoke of Hemi appearing impatient fidgety and very uneasy while waiting for his car. 
A security chief at GE brought the jury through Hemi's actions as recorded by the keycard readers and video cameras, showing that Hemi had sufficient time to leave the office, commit the murder, return the rental van, and get back to his desk, all without an alibi. The next witnesses were the people on the scene on November 18, 2010, describing the silver minivan racing through Rusty's neighborhood, then following his car into the preschool parking lot, the gunman in the fake beard calmly shooting Rusty dead before screeching away. The graphic descriptions of the shooting reverberated through the courtroom. Rusty's brother Stephen cried, as Aaliyah Stodder said. His eyes were still open, and he was gasping for air. There was quite a lot of blood everywhere. Once again, the trial boomeranged back to Andrea. School official Donna Formato recalled getting Andrea Snyderman's name from the daycare center's emergency information sheet and calling her. I told her that something had happened at the school, that Ian was okay, and that she had to come to the school right away. Did you not tell her that Rusty had been shot? asked Robert James. No, I did not. Are you certain that you did not tell her? Yes. Why? because I was worried for her to drive to the school knowing that her husband had been shot. I didn't want her to have an accident or anything on the way. Then, when Andrea arrived, her behavior at the crime scene struck witness Stodder as odd. She testified that she had mentioned to her husband that it was really weird, but she didn't have a tear in her eye. Emergency room doctor Mark Waterman also was taken aback by Andrea's behavior. The doctor, who came to court wearing his blue hospital scrubs over a t-shirt, recalled pronouncing Rusty dead, then going into the family waiting room where he found the wife. He said that he sat across from her, probably two feet away, and told her that her husband had come in, had multiple gunshot wounds, and that he had just pronounced him dead. She was not very emotional, not crying, screaming, not wanting to know what happened. In fact, her first request was to ask for a child psychologist. When asked if he would call that, in his experience, normal, he replied that it was unusual, to say the least. By Andrea's accounts, she fell out of the car when she arrived at the preschool. But per these witnesses, Andrea was stoic. The symptoms of shock actually do resemble stoicism. Many people in shock don't experience emotions others would consider normal. They may not cry, they may be numb, they may seem to function on autopilot. Both the prosecution and the defense focus endlessly on portraying Andrea as the temptress who pushed a mentally ill man to murder. But they disregard the fact that she may have been in shock. This is Hemi's trial, not Andrea's. I want to stress that again. Now we shift to concrete physical evidence. After four days, the prosecution turned to the police investigation. Even during the testimony about Hemi's interrogation, the subject of Andrea returned. Barnes pointed to several of the things that Andrea never revealed, that Hemi had been with her in Longmont, the phone calls to Hemi the morning of the murder, that Hemi had given her the laptop at the Shiva. Barnes spoke of his growing unease with Andrea when he and Deputy Chief Sides interviewed her after Hemi's arrest. And while she did disclose more about her travels with Hemi, she still did not reveal her anger and guilt after the first Greenville trip, or sending Hemi photos of her daughter's birthday party, or dancing at the Pulse nightclub, or that she had cashed out a $2 million life insurance policy on Rusty. 
After the prosecution laid out its evidence about the murder weapon with testimony from ballistics expert Kelly Fight, the case against Hemi Newman featured one last witness. On February 28th, day six of the trial, FBI electronics examiner Chad Fitzgerald spoke of the secrets found in Hemi's iPhone. By showing which cell phone towers pinged his many calls, Fitzgerald could draw a map for the jury. Hemi in Norfolk with Andrea, in Denver with Andrea, in Greenville with Andrea. He texted her the same day he went to a gun show. On another day, he called a costume shop, then called Andrea, then called another costume shop. He told the jury of Hemi's 15 calls after killing Rusty, nine of them to Andrea's phone. One answered, the 42-second call at 10.43 a.m. while Andrea was on her way to the hospital. On November 19, 2010, the day Andrea spoke to a detective, there were two calls between them of about three minutes each. Overall, according to Chad Fitzgerald, from May 1, 2010, when Andrea started working at GE Energy, through the day of her husband's murder, she made 1,426 contacts with Hemi and 882 with Rusty. Fitzgerald left the stand. The state of Georgia rested its case. The prosecution's goal was simple, to prove that Hemi was guilty. The physical evidence, the phone records, the rental van, the gun, provide an overwhelming connection linking Hemi to Rusty's murder. The prosecution wants to refute the theory that Hemi was mentally ill, that his visions and his delusions prevented him from discerning between right and wrong. So they frame their argument around Andrea, drilling her as if she were on trial. The prosecution makes Andrea their scapegoat, fairly or not. We pick up the next episode with the defense. What will Hemi's lawyers highlight? How will they prove his mental state? Stay tuned for more on Case Closed. Case Closed is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. This season is based on the book Crazy for You by Michael Fleeman. Get the book or audiobook using the link in our show notes. The show is produced by Becky Celestina with help from Sarah Grill and Alyssa Martino. We also want to thank Michael Fleeman. Can't wait to hear what really happened to Rusty Snyderman? Hear all of this season right now on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash caseclosed and use code CLOSED to start your free trial. I'm Charlie Spicer. Thanks so much for listening. Listening.